Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannam, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathu, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surag, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. That was a great job. That was now. Um, I've never preached on a text like this before, and one thing that I've been learning is that the Bible is always full of glorious things, even in a text like this. And so I know it can feel really boring to read genealogies. It can feel really boring to read parts of the Bible like this. But God has big things for us this evening in this text. It's not a throwaway. This isn't a one-off. This is an important word, a message from God to our hearts. It's also not lost on me that this is Jesus' family tree. And I'm going to comment tonight on the incredible influence families have on us. And... My mother is here, which I'm happy for that. And, um, and she's a great mother, so thanks for being here, Mom. And, and, and we will see what this text has to do with our families. So as I was reading this text, one verse that I think is really important for it is verse 22, the verse that comes right before it. It says... And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, 
with you I am well pleased. So I want to ask, what do you think of when you hear that Jesus is the Son of God? I know that's a common term that we tend to throw around, and it's an important term. I think a lot of us tend to think that it means, oh, Jesus is God. That's what the term the Son of God means. However, if you take a look at verse 38, it says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is called the son of God. If Adam is called the son of God, then that term probably doesn't mean that Jesus is God. Now I believe that he is. I believe 100% that Jesus is God. I just don't think that's exactly what that term is getting at. I think it's getting at something else. And so as we burrow into this text, we're going to try to discover what does it mean exactly that Jesus is the Son of God? We're going to have to look a little bit into the Old Testament. So we're going to take a little bit of a journey through the scriptures and find out what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God. And then I also want to comment on what his being the Son of God means for some of the brokenness that we feel from our earthly families. I know that I, as great of an upbringing as I have, have brokenness in my family. I notice that the shortcomings that I have, the sins I commit, are in many cases the same shortcomings and sins my parents committed. I wonder who of you here comes here this evening feeling controlled or influenced by wounds that you have felt in your past, wounds that you have felt from your very own family members who were supposed to love you, and from time to time they didn't. See, this Jesus being the Son of God is not just an abstract theological reality I want us to understand. It's something I want to press into our hearts, specifically in relationship to our own family trees and our own upbringings. So let's begin together to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, we don't really care that much about genealogies in our culture. I know Ancestry.com is making this kind of thing come back, but I've never done it, and it doesn't really appeal that much to me. I've, I know my dad, my grandpa, and maybe my great-grandpa, and that's about as far back as I can tell you about my family heritage. I'm from Norway and Finland. I know that. And, and that's just not the case for people in the ancient world. A genealogy would have been either something of pride or shame. They would have been careful to preserve it. If some heroic national figure, like maybe like a George Washington kind of figure, was in your family tree... That would speak something about you, about your status, about your belonging to the society. If some horrific figure like Hitler or someone else was in your genealogy, you might try to hide it for the shame that it would bring you to be connected with a person like that. The point is that genealogies teach us about people, the people that they're about. This isn't just a record for us to go over. The genealogy is supposed to educate us and instruct us about who Jesus is. So as we go through this genealogy, the question we want to have on our minds is what is this teaching us about Jesus? 
What are we learning as we go through it? So let's start with verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So it says Jesus began his ministry. That sounds like a super ordinary word, Jesus began his ministry. But in Luke, began is actually a loaded term. We see him use this phrase again and again throughout his writings in this book in Acts. And he's talking about the new era of history that Jesus is bringing about. I promise you the world never changed as much as in the three years that Jesus was around and the next generation when amazingly the church was planted and reached the entire known world at that time. Here's one verse from Luke's writings later in Acts when he's referring back to this period. And at this point they're trying to pick a new apostle. And they're saying make sure that apostle was there when Jesus was baptized when all of this began. Make sure he was there from the start of this new historical era. So one of the men who have accompanied us, this is verse 21, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, here it is, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One thing that we should be aware of is that this genealogy will teach us about a fresh, brand new work that God began to do in the world through Jesus. We're still living in that age right now. This fresh work is the most important thing happening in my life right now. And if you're in Christ, it's the most important thing happening in your life right now. And if you're not in Christ yet, I pray that this work would happen in you. The fact that we're reading a genealogy actually makes the exact same point. If you read especially the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, a genealogy comes up when a new part of God's story is about to happen. So when we see this text right here, at this point in the story, our ears should perk up. God is going to do something new in the story. And in fact, from this point on, through the entire journey of the Gospel of Luke, the prologue is over. We're about to see Jesus in action. We're about to see Jesus conquering evil. We're about to see Jesus bringing new life and healing that the world needs. And this is the climactic, dramatic beginning of it if we have eyes to see it. This is not boring literature. This is intense literature. And it is drawing on a solid history of tradition in the Bible and in the world. says that he was about 30 years of age. So Jesus began his ministry as a mature man. One question that came up during my research was, why did Jesus live for 30 years in a small village where no one really knew who he was before he started his ministry? Like really, God created Adam as a mature man, Eve as a mature woman. Couldn't he have just created Jesus? As a mature man, as an adult who could come and just save the world, why go through the trouble of living through 30 years where no one knows who he is or what he came to do? This is an important point we are going to see in the book of Luke. 
Jesus is a complete, full human being, is every bit as much as you or me. And so often our teaching emphasizes the deity of Christ that we forget the humanity of Christ. So often I am inclined to think, Jesus, you can't relate with me. You've never been through this. And I'm wrong when I say that because he has. He has been through situations and experiences like yours. There's not a single experience you can have that he cannot relate with. He fought with other kids. He fought with his brothers and sisters. He went through puberty. He went through monotonous days at work. He lost relatives and grandparents and parents. This is a fully human Jesus who relates and connects with us exactly where we are at. And if we miss that, we're going to miss connecting with him and depending on him to the degree that he invites us to. If we miss that, we'll feel like we have to figure out how it is to be human all on our own. Jesus doesn't need your help figuring out what it's like to be a human being. He's been there, he's done that, and he's ready and able to help you precisely where you're at. Now we see some names in this genealogy. We see Jesus' name, which we recognize. And I see Joseph's name, which I recognize. Then I see this name, the son of Heli. Never heard of him. Matat, never heard of him. I don't think I said it right even. Levi, Malki. Now we go through this list where we see 75 of Jesus' ancestors. And the majority of them, I have never heard of them, you have never heard of them, and no one knows anything about them. There's going to be some giants from the Old Testament that show up. Some huge names, which we'll get to. But the majority of these names were people that we have no idea about. And besides their names being written here in the Bible, we never hear about them again. What does this teach us? That the work that Jesus came to do and accomplish is for ordinary people. Jesus comes from a lineage of ordinary people, and he connects and relates to ordinary people. Anyone who asks you or tells you that this religion is for the elite, for the well-connected, for the rich and the powerful are wrong. And Luke unfolds this point again and again and again. Jesus actually teaches that the poor and the ordinary in this world are more likely to believe in the gospel because they better understand their need for it. The rich, the powerful, the famous live and feel like they don't need him. And so it's good, comforting news that as we read through this list of monotony, that Christ is okay with our ordinariness. He's okay with it. He never called you to be great. He never called you to stand out. He called you to be connected to him. That's what makes these people special. That's what puts their name in the Bible, the most famous book ever written. Nothing special about them except they were connected to Jesus. I had a conversation with a friend this week, and he shared with me about how dissatisfied he was with life because he wasn't recognized as a great person. Daniel preached a sermon on this last week. And this genealogy reminds us, every time we feel like we need to be great in the world's eyes, instead we just need to be connected to Christ 
Every bit of fame, wealth, money, and power that you accumulate for yourself is going to go away one day and it won't matter. If you're connected to Christ, that's going to last forever. Now, as we continue through this list of names, maybe about 40 names later, in verse 31, here's what we see. It says that Jesus is the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan. That's a name we recognize, and here's one we recognize even more. The son of David. Why is that important? Although Jesus mostly descends from people we would never hear from, nevertheless, he is in the line of the kings of Israel. He is the rightful king of Israel, and therefore the rightful king of the world. For Jesus to come and do all that he had to do, he had to have a claim to the throne. I'm going to explain that more in a moment. But he came as the son of David and had a claim to the throne. The angel Gabriel says this to Mary in Luke 1.32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. If you know anything about David, he was not a timid man. He was not, he might have been a gentle man, but he was a man of war. He came and he saw a giant defying the armies of God. What was his response? He killed the dude and cut his head off. He spent most of his life waging wars and going to battle. This teaches us something important about Jesus. When he came, he came as a warrior. That's good news. Because you and me have severe enemies. The Bible even says the devil is prowling around like a lion trying to devour you. you we have severe enemies. My heart is trying to tempt me into committing sin that will ruin and destroy my life and other people. If Jesus isn't a warrior who came to go to war against those things, what kind of savior is he? If Jesus came and had only power and not love, I would be terrified because he would just steamroll me because I have offended him. But if he came with only love and no power, he might have been able to send me warm thoughts but he wouldn't be able to help me from any of the things that I'm going through, any of the things that are threatening me. You need a warrior. You need a fighter. If any of you ever seen the power of the kingdom of darkness that's in this world, you start to figure out how severe our enemies are and how big of a deal it is that Jesus is our Savior. I was talking to one of the little kids in our congregation. And he came up and asked me one day, he says, Ross, do you know who my greatest enemy is? I said, well, that's quite a question. Uh, why, why don't you tell me? And he goes, Satan. 
you could answer. Yeah, it's not your sister, it's Satan. And I added, you're right, it's Satan and your own heart that is prone to follow and wander after him. And if Jesus was just a lion and not a lamb, I would have, if Jesus, sorry, if Jesus was just a lamb and not a lion, I would have no good news for this little man. And there'd be no good news for you. But because Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, there is good news for you. He can fight for you. He can go to war against the enemy who is out for blood. We keep going through the genealogy. Once again, some more names come up that we don't know, that I couldn't tell you about until we get to verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. For anyone who doesn't know, Abraham is a huge figure in the Old Testament. He's the one God showed up to and made promises to that he would have a nation and a people and that the Messiah would come through his people. And so when we read Genesis twenty-two seventeen, 17, hear this verse with this genealogy in mind. It says, I will surely bless you, this is God speaking to Abraham, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, think of a genealogy as about offspring, shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's the warrior we see in, in Jesus. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So somehow, Jesus, this genealogy is showing us that Jesus is this offspring, is going to come and bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That's really good news, because that means that Jesus brings blessing to all kinds of people. I'm not a Jewish person. And according to the Old Testament, for blessing to come to me, I would have to become a Jewish person. But God's grace through this offspring is going to extend to the families of all the earth. Any kind of person is welcome to come to him, just as you are. There's no kind of person that Jesus is not for. There's no kind of person that doesn't need him. And one thing that this gives us hope for is that Jesus can create a truly diverse church. A church where all kinds of people belong to it no matter who you are or where you come from. The biggest, some of the biggest problems we face today are how do different kinds of people get along? There's tension, there's even riots, there's heartbreak, there's anger, there's simmering pain, and yet there feels like there's no progress. And one reason I feel like it feels like we've stalled is because we're not looking to the right solution. The right solution to the division that we face today is unity around a common Savior who saved us all from our sins. Reading the biography of, uh, autobiography of Billy Graham right now. He wouldn't go to South Africa to do evangelism because it was an apartheid state. And he refused to go if 
there was a separation between people at his rally until the opportunity came for him to go and have a crusade where everyone in the audience would be able to be together. It's a picture of the kind of unity this gospel brings. That when Jesus heals our sins, he brings us all together and allows us to love one another. We keep going now. We see more names. Some of them we don't recognize. Some of them we do, like Noah. We keep going to Methuselah, to Enoch, to Jared, then to Enos, then to Seth. And now, now we arrive at the climax. The most interesting point of the genealogy. What does it say? The son of Adam, the son of God. Why would Luke call Adam the son of God? I believe he is making a comparison between Jesus and Adam. Adam was a son who was supposed to obey God and through obeying him would bring blessing and life to him and his descendants. Until he failed his test and brought death and curse to the creation. Jesus is coming as a new Adam. And if he passes the test, he can restore all the good things that Adam lost, that I lost, that you lost. He can restore the blueprint for a world where God and people live in harmony and love with him and with one another. When God created Adam in the garden, he created him as a son. As a son, he would share intimacy with his father as any good father and son would. And this is the part that surprised me. As a son, Adam would be royalty. To be a son of God is to be royalty. And just to be clear, I'm going to refer to men and women as sons of God in this sermon, because the Bible does. And if that makes any of the ladies uncomfortable, the Bible calls people like me the bride of Christ, so I have to get used to that. Adam was king. People were created with unbelievable dignity. Kings and queens. Now where am I getting this idea? Where does this come up in the scriptures? Please listen to 1 Samuel 12, 12 through 14. This is God speaking to David, who, as I mentioned, also appears in this genealogy. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, there's that word again, after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. 
Sonship and royalty are connected. And even if we look back in Genesis, when God first created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he put them over creation. He says, I give you something over creation. It's a word that starts with a D. Does anyone know what it is? Can anyone shout it out? Dominion. It means rule. God gave Adam and Eve rule in his garden. And what just struck my heart this week is that God as a father doesn't withhold anything from his children. Not even his own throne. He creates his son and says, guess what? You're going to rule with me. What human king is like that? I get upset when I'm playing a board game and other people try to interpret the rules. And God is a king who shares even his throne with Adam and Eve. There is nothing that they could have possibly lacked or wanted while they were living in his kingdom. Which makes it all the more tragic and all the more sad when they take the fruit and eat it and submit to the serpent rather than to God. This is the moment where Adam stops being a king and starts being a slave. This is a moment where he starts following the serpent instead of being a free son of God. This is a moment where human life stopped feeling like being royalty and started feeling more like being a slave. That's why we feel like we're slaves to our schedules. That's why we feel like we're slaves to broken relationships. That's why we feel like we're slaves to mental illness and pain and heartbreak and poverty and all sorts of other things. The reason we became and feel like slaves is because Adam obeyed the serpent and forfeited his position as a son of God. And that's where we sit right now apart from the grace of God. So is there good news in this text? Or is it only bad news? I think there is good news. Let's take a look back at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. What does that mean? It means he wasn't actually Joseph's son. Which is a good thing he wasn't, because if he was Joseph's son, he would have been Adam's son. And if he was Adam's son, he would have had the same slavery and death that you and I have. And he wouldn't have been able to help anyone. But as it is, he is not Adam's son. When the angel Gabriel shows up and announces that Jesus is going to be born, he says, this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as a new son. A new Adam. He can come and succeed where the first Adam failed. And with that, he can restore the blessing in life that God always planned for us, but that we never got. Jesus came to fix what we did, and Adam screwed up. This is what it means to be a son of God. A king that comes to represent and help 
his people. Now for him to be that king for us, to be that son of God, he is going to have to go to battle. And that's part of the identity of the son of God. As I was studying, I saw a text in Psalm 2 that points to this. In the Old Testament, that term nations is a reference to the enemies of God. We know in the New Testament, it's more specific that the true enemies of God are Satan and sin, and that God rescues even the nations from them. But in the Old Testament, when those nations were fighting against Israel, they were indicative, they were representative of the enemies of God. Here's Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus came to fight against the stuff that we hate. And I hate Satan. I hate him. I saw him this week in a new way. I saw him tear apart and destroy the life of one of my friends. I saw him crush his family. I'm happy that Jesus is here to drive Satan back into hell. And I hope you are too. God isn't indifferent to the suffering you're going through. He's going to wage holy war against it. I love already in Luke chapter 4, the very next chapter, we see Jesus going into war with the devil. <laughs> right away. He does battle with the opponent that Adam lost to. And he kicks his, his butt. <laughs> and then later on in the chapter, we see in verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying what are they crying? You are the son of God. Not even the demons could help but confess that Jesus was this new son who came to defeat them. And if you are standing in front of someone with a demon, that's not too powerful for Jesus to face. There is no problem you are facing that the son of God cannot overcome now at this point in the story I feel a little bit of tension I feel a little bit of a problem and that is is that if I trace back my own family lineage it goes back to Adam if you face trace back your family lineage, it goes back to Adam, which means that you resemble him and that you are aligned with the serpent. Apart from Christ, you are aligned with the serpent who is against God. 
We resemble our ancestors. We resemble our parents. I look an awful lot like my mother. And the problem is, is that in the ways we act and behave, apart from Christ, we look an awful lot like Adam and an awful lot like the serpent. The ways that we get angry at God or envious or hateful towards others, and maybe this is the one that gets back to the heart of the issue, the ways that we think we can live independently of God. That's what Adam did in the garden. He says, ah, God, I don't need you anymore. I got this on my own. That's the way I live. And so when Jesus comes, I should not necessarily think, oh, good. I should maybe think, oh, no. My family line is allied with the serpent in the garden. But Jesus does war with his enemy in the most unexpected way. The most unexpected way. Instead of crushing his enemies, he goes to the cross and he dies for them so that he can make enemies of his, like myself, his family. That's how he does it. And the way to become a part of the family of Jesus is to believe and trust him. Adam and Eve ceased to be family of God when they stopped trusting in him. When they said, I'm going to eat this fruit, and I'm going to figure it out on my own apart from you. And beautifully, the way that God designed us to rejoin his family is to believe and trust in him, specifically in Jesus. So when we stop becoming self-dependent people and start becoming Christ-dependent people, we leave the line and lineage of Adam and join the line and lineage of Christ. We leave the family line of death and misery and join the family line of joy and peace and life. Here's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Galatians 3.26. And the Apostle Paul was a close associate of Jesus's. Sorry, of Luke's. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. We're sons of God through faith. I need to mention at this point that no matter what your preschool teacher said to you, unless you have faith in Jesus, you are not yet a son of God. But Jesus paid every price, the full price of the punishment and wrath that you and I deserve so that you could become a son right now. If anyone here has never yet become a son of God, I want to invite you to talk to one of the members here, talk to myself, and don't leave this place until you have a new family tree, until you belong to Jesus. Even for us who are already in Christ's family, we still face the assaults of our enemy. Something that struck me as I was studying this passage, it is that, it is that the very adoption of Jesus into his family, of us, so Jesus adopting us into his family, that disarms Satan's greatest weapon against us. Here's what I mean. 
Even though Christ has already forgiven us of our sins, the Bible says that Satan is an accuser. He brings up old sins we've committed. He brings up old lies we've told. He brings up old people we've hurt. And he tells us, you are condemned. He tries to make us feel like we are not sons of God. He does whatever he can to accuse us and to belittle us and to make us feel like we're not actually the adopted children that we are. That's how he tries to destroy us. Remember how I said earlier that God shares everything with his children? Everything with his children? I want you to think of that in relationship to verse 22. God shares everything with his children. A voice came from heaven and said to Jesus, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Try to imagine how much God loves Jesus. Just try to imagine how much he loves Jesus. If you are a son of God right now, his love for you is no less than that. It's not part of his love for Jesus. All of his love for Jesus. All of his pleasure in Jesus. His love and pleasure he has in you. You can open your eyes now. When Jesus took our place on the cross so that we could take his place, it means that we get the same pleasure from God that he got. It's something you can remind yourself every time you feel tempted to despair. The same pleasure that God has in Jesus is the pleasure he has for you as long as you trust in his son, Jesus. Amazing. It's amazing. I think this text also applies to our families and the brokenness that we have experienced from them. So many of the works of Satan happen in our lives because of the wounds that we've received from our parents and siblings who are the closest people to us so it makes sense that they can wound us the most. It's so easy to live out of those wounds. It's so easier to wound other people in the same way that we've been wounded. It's so easy to feel like it will never heal, like you'll never be right. And Jesus being the son of God who came to fight against the works of Satan means that he wants to put, set you right. Means that he wants to heal you. Means that he wants to restore you where you've been broken. Some of us come from different ends of the spectrum. You might come from a great family. And guess what? Even if you're from a great family, your parents were sinners and you need healing. And some of us came from terrible families. And you need healing. And you have the Son of God who is fighting for you to have that healing. Here's a quote I want to read you from Louis Giglio's book, Not Forsaken. If God can bring about our best from Christ's worst, he can surely overcome the mangled web of destruction left by people in your life. God can restore and bring about something beautiful from the chaos in your life, the legacy of the devastation in your past. He can and will bring the changes that display his love and power. Oh, and this is not some fairy tale promise I'm offering. 
some wishful mumbo-jumbo. It's a bedrock truth anchored in history and at the cross. I have some homework for you. I want you to spend some time, maybe during the reflection today, maybe afterwards, reflecting on a way that you've been hurt in your family. And I say this not because I want to stir up bitterness or resentment against your family, but because I want you to be healed from it. And I want you to consider how God was not like your family in that way. How he was the good and perfect father that you might never have had. Find a specific verse in the Bible that shows how God's character is different from the character of the person or people who hurt you. And reflect and pray on that. And ask God to heal you of the wound you've experienced by your experience of his perfect fatherhood and his perfect character. It says his word is living and active. Okay? Living and active. It means it has an effect on us. It means it changes us. And if you don't know the Bible very well, just ask one of the members to help you find a verse that applies to your situation. Don't feel like you have to do this alone. But God is the perfect Father who perfectly loves and takes care of you in the way that our earthly families have failed us. To bring this all together, this genealogy shows us that God is doing a fresh work in history in Christ. He's turning a new page. This new page will help the lowly, the ordinary, the afflicted. And he will do war for them, for anyone who trusts in him. He will help and save and deliver. I want us to end by marveling that Jesus is fighting for us. Could anything be better news than that? Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus is fighting for you. He is the one who loves us and helps us, saves us wherever we are fighting, facing our opponent right now. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for the beautiful things you showed us about in this text, about you. Even a genealogy shows us the beauty of a Savior. Would you please undo the works of Satan? Would you please overthrow him in the lives of the people in this room? Would you please drive him back and drive him away and bring healing where there's hurt and wounds and pain? Would you help them to see that you're a perfect father? Would you help anyone who does not yet know you as father to believe in Jesus? And would you please continue to work and minister right now? In Jesus' name, amen.